Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the darkest farm side keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing paper? Swinging your tools the more you gave up. Call us the tricks of your trade. Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter. Don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade. Hello, welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Serson. I'm a construction adjudicator, I'm a lawyer, and I'm the director of Tricks of Your Trade. Today on my podcast, I want to talk to you guys about how to triage and rank the departures that you ask your builder for when you're doing your contract review. So this is something that I get calls about oh, every single day, multiple times a day. Um, my inbox is always full of, Michelle, should I ask them for this over this or is it okay for us to accept this? Um, what do you think about this change to this clause? All of those types of things. And there's the legal approach to marking up contracts and redrafting clauses. And look, in my experience, it's rarely the clauses in the contract that cause the fight uh, or cause the problem. It's usually the circumstances that unfold that result in everybody running back to the draw, grabbing the contract out and then deciding who wins the fight. So um, a segue for a, a plug for negotiation would be that, hey, don't have fights, have negotiations in those circumstances. But uh, in the first instance, before you even start the job and everybody is still friends, you have to do like a crystal ball exercise and decide, well, what do I need to negotiate on with this contract? So I just want to preface this uh, podcast with a little comment that, Builders themselves don't write their contracts. Lawyers write the contracts. It's possible the builders meddled with their contract a little bit, but inevitably they originally got it from somewhere. And most of the time it's not the builder who has dreamt up the nasty clause that you're having argy-bargy about. In fact, a lot of solicitors will set the parties up to fail uh, in circumstances where they will overcook contract clauses that can't be performed to. And it, it, it ends up in a situation where the subcontractor cannot comply with the contract. The builder is not getting the outcome that they desired in the first instance. And at the root of the whole cause is that instead of looking at the situation or the circumstance from a practical standpoint and deciding, well, how does this client need to be best looked after? In order to do a really good job, those lawyers overcook the clauses and they just, they put overly onerous expectations into those clauses. So when there's a triage process at the start of the job, when everyone's still friends, it's almost impossible for you to have a crystal ball and know what kind of legal argument people are going to throw at you. Um, that's more of a reactive type situation. The proactive way I find best to go about this process is to look at things from a practical standpoint, from a logical standpoint, and from a job-specific standpoint. And the beauty about this process is that 
the subbies have got all of this in their mind. Like this is actually, this is not rocket science. This is not legal jargon. This is stuff you already know. And in fact, if your estimator has diligently measured every single part of your scope of work, they intimately know the job. They've been looking at things going, oh, that looks like that interface there is probably going to be an issue. I wonder if they'll have scaffold for us there. How are we going to get our materials up to this particular part of the building? in that tight spot. So almost all of the Barneys that end up happening in construction contracts all stem from circumstantial issues that can be controlled by you and managed by you. Um, but the reactive unfortunate situation is that the parties will run back to the contract to see who's right. So when you are looking at which clause should I accept, um, accept a back down on, and which clause do I need to hold firm on? There's a little bit of a process that you can undertake in doing that that will help you out uh, with this process. So the first thing I want to remind you of is we all do this stuff with safety every day. So this is risk management. This is just risk management. And guys, I'm sorry, but risk management is not a sexy topic. So normally when I start talking about mitigating risk, people just turn off. But you need to think of it in terms of like this is actually a practical step that I can take to prevent what could be a very big catastrophe in a, in a contract in the future. So the first test um, that we do when we're doing, looking at a clause, and it, it doesn't look like something we want to have in the contract, but you need to decide, do I want to push the envelope on it? Because at the end of the day, you've got a finite amount of negotiation currency. So, you know, negotiation currency is not something that you can measure when you go into a negotiation. It's something you need to feel out through the process. You can maximise your negotiation currency sometimes by grouping things with other things to get them over the line together. Um, and sometimes you can spend your negotiation currency on things that you didn't even need to be negotiating over. And unfortunately, when we see lawyers do contract reviews, particularly if they're not construction lawyers who have never spent a day on site, they don't intimately understand the practical outcome that's trying to be achieved. And sometimes you'll see um, lawyers who will have departures out the wazoo that are not even relevant to that particular client's trade. So in terms of what do you back down on and how do you work out which one to take priority? First thing you want to look at is what's the likelihood this is going to unfold? So right there, that's a circumstantial fact or a circumstantial uh, probability that you can forecast or try to predict. And if it's something that's not even part of your scope of work, or you won't even be on site when that thing happens, the likelihood's not there, right? So you might just go, look, this is so unlikely that this is going to take place. I'm not going to prioritise this over losing the job or not, not coming to terms with this builder. The second thing you want to look at is if you go, yep, you know what, this is pretty likely you need to look at what the consequences are. So this is not rocket science, guys. This is like the hierarchy of risk controls that we use for safety when you're doing a risk assessment. You can literally get the same thing. And this is how often I use it. I've, I've got it on my desk while I'm here um, doing this podcast. And you're looking at your likelihood versus your consequences. And then we have some controls. So how likely is it? Yeah, it's really likely. Um, the consequences are catastrophic. Okay, that's up there with we need to get this sorted out. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to get it crossed out. 
because you've also got the hierarchy of controls that you can use. So when we look at safety, I'll just remind you all what they are. It's elimination, substitution, engineering, administration, and PPE. So that's what they do in safety when they want to look at uh, eliminating a risk. Or um, if you need to do a job, this is a great example. If you need to do a job on site and there is a residual risk, no matter what you do, because what you are doing is high risk work, then you need to look to these controls to go, okay, how can we protect ourselves so that this can still be done? Because if something was so risky that you could never, never, never put any controls in place to protect the people doing it, it's likely we wouldn't be allowed to do that work. Okay, so switching back to putting it into the contract context, we're looking at how can we control these risks without going to the builder and saying, I want you to cross this out. Let me give you a really good example. A client of ours recently was talking to me about a clause that required him to go and delineate or separate out materials for this particular builder and put a sign up to say that those materials belong to the builder. So this all stemmed back to this, this particular client was getting a deposit and he it was a big deposit and the builder, understandably, wanted to know that by paying the deposit to the subby, the subby was going to buy the materials he said he would and that they would be stored at his warehouse and labelled with the builder's name on them. So the builder had wanted to go and put in a PPS registration over those particular materials and that was all what the plan was. So you can see here that, look, this is really likely this is going to happen. The consequences of us not doing that would be that we would be in breach of contract if we didn't go and delineate out those materials and put a sign up. The subby said to me at the time, Michelle, it's bulk materials. It's not unique. Like we're buying bulk materials. This is not bespoke stuff. For me to demarcate out where these materials are in our warehouse is not practical and I'm just not going to do it. So how can I possibly sign up to a contract to say I'm going to do something when I just don't plan to do it? We go, okay, listen, let's test this in reality you've got bulk materials, the likelihood that this is going to come into play is pretty low, that the builder's going to come to your, to your warehouse. And what are the consequences of it? Well, there's no real damages. It's not going to cost the builder anything if you have not put their name or a sign up. And then how would you fix it? Well, it's not going to cost you anything to just print out the sign and take it out there and put it up somewhere. Given that they were bulk materials, it would have been very difficult for the builder to ascertain where that particular, um, their, their materials stopped and started. So that's why they were saying we need to be able to have that. And the reason that was important to the builder was because it, in a practical sense, if this subby went broke and there was a PPS registration, the builder would physically have to go to the warehouse and tell the person who was the person for the liquidator who was looking after the property, those are my materials and I can tell because our sign's on it. So, um, in terms of whether or not you would give up on a clause like that, you can see how very quickly there are practical measures that we can put in place. So um, all the subby needed to do was to go and put a sign up and rope out or even tape up or put some kind of demarcation around the materials that were set to go to that particular job site. So you can see there where you can actually eliminate something without just crossing it out. It might be inconvenient, but it's a administrative measure that you can quite quickly put in place to make sure that you're complying with your contract. Now guys, when I'm giving you that example, I fully appreciate that that's a pretty 
low consequence type scenario that I've given you, but it's an example of how my idea of something that I think is a no-brainer, that why wouldn't you just go and put the sign out there, uh, was something that a client of mine said to me, but I can't sign a contract that I have no intention of complying with. And that's absolutely true. So my idea of what is important to rank in terms of a priority in a contract clause might be entirely different to what you think. And it all comes down to that circumstantial job knowledge and the commercial decisions that you make in your business about what kind of risk you want to take. So um, going back to these controls, because they're pretty important, right? So we want to talk about elimination. Uh, a really good example of that is if you can eliminate a clause by crossing it out, that is elimination. But sometimes you can't cross clauses out because you need them to be able to do something else as well. So it might be the case that you still need the clause to be in the contract, but you don't want it to work in that way against you. So that's when it would fall to substitution, where you do try and make a little amendment to the clause. But let me give you another example of elimination. What if you were an electrician and you had pacifier components that had to be certified? And that certification component of your job was too high risk for you and there could be clauses in the contract that say that you're responsible for bringing anything up to code and let's use the example of a really big refurb so say we've got a 150 year old building in Sydney CBD and the um, builder is doing a refurb and you're the sparky and you've got passive fire components and you're worried that in your um, in the course of doing that work, it's possible that you might have to bring that building up to code in terms of uh, where it needs to be. So that might be a huge risk that you don't, there might be unknowns, there might be latent conditions, all those things. So you as the electrician might decide, well, I can eliminate this risk by asking the builder to engage the certifier directly. And then suddenly you're being given a direction from the builder to carry out additional work once it's discovered rather than you discovering additional work and that person directing how that's going to be done. So um, that's just one example of how you might just eliminate some scope that's going to be a problem. Um, another example might be um, recently we had a waterproofer who was worried about some dinsel panels um, and an interface with a slab and where the waterproofing membrane would be in conjunction with this, these panels. And so the waterproofer had suggested an alternative method. Builder was happy with that and they went ahead with the job, but effectively it eliminated the risk that this guy had to deal with with his contract. Now, engineering, I look at engineering and think, okay, how can we engineer a situation where we don't have any risk anymore? Well, you might engineer a risk by getting an insurance policy. Um, you might engineer a risk by performing better from your end by having better quality assurance. You might have more checks and measures. You might engage a consultant who um, does, does like an engineering check for you for a particular part of the scope of work. So those are practical ways that you can actually make the consequences of that risk lower because if you use the uh, insurance example, you've got an insurance policy if something goes bad. So the so the likelihood it's going to happen is not going to change. There's no way you can change the likelihood that this particular risk is going to occur. But what you can change is what's the consequences. So you're effectively engineering by getting an insurance policy, um, paying for an insurance policy to make sure that the risk um, is lower because the consequences aren't so high. 
Now, in terms of administration, this is my favourite one because not administration doesn't just create your war chest of evidence for if and when there's a big fight. That's absolutely important. But the other thing administration does, which I love, 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 is it puts you on the bottom of the pile of people to pick on because there will always be somebody out there who is not doing their admin, who is a sitting duck or playing blind man's bluff on the freeway. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, that's not you because you're getting an education about how to improve those systems and processes and how to know what to look for when things are going bad. But there's no traffic jams on the extra mile, guys. Admin is time heavy and it takes a commitment But you guys need to understand that this is a necessary function of the business that you run because you are in the big ticket subcontracting uh, business. If you want to be turning over multi-million dollars a year in your business, then this is a necessary function of your business. You wouldn't just overlook doing your bookkeeping, hopefully. Um, And you certainly wouldn't overlook actually building the work that you're being engaged to build. And I know that people like to skimp in certain areas of their business if they can get away with it for a while. You are taking a calculated risk. And so it is a little bit like Russian roulette. You will only get away with it for so long. And eventually the cost of not doing your admin will be 10x what the wages for one person who could have fixed this problem for you would have been. So bear that in mind in terms of your administration. If you have clauses in the contract that are nasty for you if you do not do your administration, that is going to be a high consequence for you. If you do the administration, there are no consequences. So you can see there how administration is an actual tried and tested, true blue, bona fide control for risk that you should be seriously considering. Uh, Look, in terms of PPE, that's a safety reference. But when I think of PPE, I think about Band-Aids. So when we have a problem with a contract, we have to look reactively at what are the Band-Aids that we can do here. So retroactive or retrospective contract administration is a Band-Aid. So if you try to put the puzzle pieces together after the fact and try to orchestrate some kind of evidence, not only could you be committing a fraud, but the evidence just isn't that convincing because you've done it retrospectively. Um, But Band-Aids is also legal fees, and that's an expensive business to be in. So when you're looking at the the level of controls that you can apply to your business, you need to be looking at those types of things. So when you are doing your uh, assessment of the clauses in the contract about which ones you can give up on, first step, like what is the likelihood this is going to happen and what are the consequences? If it's high likelihood and high consequences, you need to start looking at these controls. Can we eliminate it? Can we get insurance for that? Will the risk be substantially reduced if I do my contract admin? And am I actually going to do my contract admin? Because don't give yourself brownie points for that if you don't have any intention of doing the admin. It's like the guy with the sign who said, look, Michelle, I'm not signing a contract and I'm just not prepared to go and do that. Is there any way that you can do due diligence as well? So if there's a way that you can look into some due diligence around the person you're contracting with, some of the uh, clauses that you might fight harder for will be less um, important if you know that you've got a stable client or 
on the flip side, if you have concerns about this client, there are things you should be pushing for harder. And one of the things that you really want to be looking for in your contract reviews is what is not in the contract. And I can tell you straight away, the right to decline a variation will, will most probably not be in your contract. Uh, you probably have no right to terminate. And you probably don't even have a right to terminate if you don't get paid. So um, you certainly won't have suspension rights. Those are, are statutory rights that you'll get from the law. If you do your paperwork in accordance with security of payment legislation, you will have the ability to suspend work if you don't get paid. Um, but the other problem that we're seeing a lot in the industry at the moment is builders who every single month can't pay you for two to three weeks. And you suspend work on the day every month and the staff of the building company say, look, we get it, we're embarrassed, do what you got to do. That's fine for them to say, but you may not be entitled to delay costs for protracted suspensions. So one of the things that I'm advocating for in contracts at the moment is that if the builder short pays you or if the builder does not pay you on time um, more than twice, under the contract, then you have the right to terminate the contract. So you need to be able to terminate the contract if this person just keeps you on the hook and drags you for a year and a half, two years. That's business sinking type stuff that if you have to endure it and you don't have any right to delay costs under your contract, you could be in a, a bit of hot water. So think about when you're working out, which clauses should I fight for and which ones should I give up? What's the likelihood it's gonna go bad? What are the consequences if it goes bad? Can we eliminate any of this risk or substitute the risk? Can we do any admin to fix it? Can I get insurance for that? Have I done due diligence on the builder? Um, what's the past trading history with the builder? If the builder's got form for doing this stuff to you in the past, you should be holding your ground. It's just absolutely astounds me the number of times I have subcontractors say to me, they did this to us on the last job and the last job. But they then went on and signed more contracts with that builder and didn't cross the same clauses out. So, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. But I think I got that back to front. Anyway, you guys get the picture. So that pretty much wraps up uh, what I wanted to talk about in terms of how you should rank it. I can't get onto this podcast and say to you, you should prefer this clause over that clause because it's subjective and it's completely relevant to the job at hand and the context in which you're doing business. So the commercial considerations around how you're doing business will 100% um, be just as important as the legal ramifications of you accepting one clause over another clause. And sometimes it could be the case that you need all of them changed or you need all of them crossed out or you need pretty much to just throw the contract out and say to the builder, hey, this is not anything like what we would normally sign. You need to give me something that's proportionate to the value of this contract. I'm doing a 30 grand job. Why would I sign this 400 page contract and give you bank guarantees? Like, come on, let's be serious about this. Um, so bear that in mind when you are doing your negotiation on your contract terms. Now guys, I'm gonna be holding a webinar um, in April about this topic. So I will come back and put in the show notes what the date of the webinar and the details for the webinar to register is. But if you would like to register for the webinar, you can do so and you'll be getting a risk matrix scorecard. So I'm gonna give you a tool in the webinar for how you can rank these things. So you'll actually get a scorecard that gives a risk rating to the clause that you're dealing with to help you make a decision about how to um, decide how to prioritize the departures that you need to get. 
If you've got any questions about my podcast, uh, don't hesitate to drop me an email, questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au. And until next time, I hope you have a fantastic week. If you have any questions about what I've talked about on this podcast, feel free to drop me a good old-fashioned email at questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au. If you would like a systematic approach to your contract administration and getting paid, head on over to our website and check out the Subbies Toolbox. You won't be disappointed there. And just one last time, our web address is www.tricksofyourtrade.com.au.